This is an ABC podcast. Wishful thinking of the Labor Party. A shameful and pathetic attempt. This government is a government of cronies and donors. From a whole lot of perspectives, it's just the right decision to make. Chaos, confusion, dysfunction. That is such a bubble question. I'm just going to leave that one in the bubble. Hello, I'm Patricia Carvellis from RN Drive. And I'm Greg Jennett, the ABC's National Affairs Correspondent. That's right, people. Fran's taken a break. But, Greg, you know a thing or two about politics, right? So I reckon we're going to be absolutely fine. Well, I used to think I did, PK, <laughs> but like, like a bunch of politicians, uh, there was a bit of a learning curve to be on back in the middle of this month with the last federal election. But the less said about that, perhaps the better right now. Learning curve for every single person who deals with politics. Politicians, journalists, analysts, pollsters, all of us. All right, this it's not week... not science, it's an art. That's right. This week began with the reshuffle for the incoming Morrison government. Anna Swearingen. Hi, Scott John. Morrison, do swear that I will well and truly serve the people of Australia in the offices of Prime Minister and Minister for the Public Service. So help me God. What did you make of who was rewarded? Because, of course, Scott Morrison got to choose who he wanted to bring in. What do you make of his lineup in terms of his priorities? So working with the team he had, PK, I reckon he's you know, probably promoted and optimised the most obvious talent. A couple of question marks around people like Stuart Robert, who are massive winners in all of this, going into the Cabinet and getting what Scott Morrison says is a really important portfolio about service delivery to the people. Uh, Stuart Roberts had, let's say, a chequered ministerial career in the past. But where I find it even more interesting, PK, is probably in those most junior outer ministry, assistant minister ranks, where there's quite a trend line you can see there through people like Ben Morton, Alex Hawke, Steve Irons to some extent, Luke Howarth, um, actually quite close allies and confidants of Scott Morrison's who've been rewarded, uh, let's face it, not just for their service to the party, but to him personally, uh, back through events from August all the way through to May. Yeah, I thought they were interesting too. And then, of course, uh, some people leaving that the Prime Minister offered some pretty good jobs to, one of them being Arthur Sinodinus. I thought that was significant. I mean, Arthur is so experienced. He clearly was interested in coming back to the front bench after an illness. Now he's going to become the ambassador to the United States. So clearly the Prime Minister came back with this offer that he couldn't refuse the second time he was offered it. Mitch Fifield also moves on. He was the Minister for Communications, again, being offered a pretty decent job at the UN for the government, and he took that job. So the Prime Minister was able to deliver, I suppose, on his generational change, if you want to call it that, by offering these other roles as well that couldn't be disputed or couldn't be, you know, no one could scoff at those jobs. Who would? No, no one seriously has criticised those, have they? Because in a sense, they they both probably were about due anyway. Arthur Sinodinus has probably gone as far as he would in parliamentary life. And the same might be said of Mitch Firefield as well. And then, PK, there's the uh, the female factor as well with a what I might call like top end loading, really pushing women up into the cabinet ranks. There, there's actually a bit more sparse in the outer ministry, but he wanted that talking point of seven female cabinet ministers and he got it. Yeah, he did. And and I think that was the right call 
all for him, given all of the commentary around women in the government. So clearly a record number of women in Cabinet is a very good move. People like Susan Lee being brought back and Rushton being uh, promoted into the Cabinet. And Melissa Price, who was the very controversial, I think it's a fair word to use, Environment Minister being dumped from Cabinet. She's still a minister, but she's losing environment. What did you make of the Prime Minister's decision there? Because he did promise that she would stay as Environment Minister. Clearly that changed. And he tried to paper over it, didn't he, PK, by saying she asked for a new challenge and I was happy to give it to her. But really, I think most people had picked this one. The writing had been on the wall since either just before the campaign or during the campaign when she went missing in action. So there's probably a bit of sympathy there, though, for Melissa Price. Sure, it's a demotion, but more extraordinary in many ways was probably her original promotion from a first-term parliamentarian straight into Cabinet off the back bench. That was always a tall order with you, when you think about some of the issues she had to manage and coal mines in central Queensland being one of them. And the other thing is the Nationals, of course, it is a coalition uh, between the Liberals and the Nationals. The Nationals get four positions in Cabinet. Portfolios diluted in some ways with David Littleproud now getting water and and uh, the deputy leader, uh, Bridget McKenzie of the Nationals, getting the agriculture portfolio. It appeared that there is a bit of, bit of grumpiness, though, in the Nationals' backbench over this. Yeah, I think it's at the margins, though, as far as I can tell, PK. When offered the opportunity to say something on the record upon arrival at Parliament House for their first meetings this week, none really took the bait, even those who'd missed out on any ministerial allocation wouldn't say so publicly. So I think it's one of those subterranean things. And as anyone will tell you, PK, this is a straight mathematical calculation. Now, yes, you can be out by point something of a person, but roughly speaking, it is in line with expectations. And then, of course, the very significant historical moment, Ken Wyatt, the first Indigenous Australian to become Indigenous Affairs Minister. This is significant on two levels. First time an Indigenous person is in Cabinet, but also the first time an Indigenous Australian to hold this pivotal role, a role that means so much to Aboriginal Australians. Having somebody you trust that you can talk to quite bluntly and not be rebuked uh, makes a difference. And there'll be a high level of engagement and connectivity with leadership, but more importantly... I'm about sitting down with the community and also having a discussion with the community about what works and what doesn't work. Policy won't be made out of my office. It'll be made in conjunction with uh, Indigenous Australians. That's exactly what Indigenous Australians wanted to hear. They talk about a partnership. They talk about uh, solutions that they develop for their own communities. And uh, this is, I think, a very significant moment. It's a magnificent achievement for Ken Wyatt. I suppose the only... Uh, injection of reality here, though, PK, would probably be to temper some of the expectations around what one individual, any one individual can achieve in this area. Now, Kem Wyatt is actually, from the get-go, being uh, very conservative about his ambitions. For instance, his early rounds of media commitments have said, look, I would like to see a network of treaties between Indigenous Australians and white Australians, but probably don't go holding your breath for a single national one. Roughly 250 Aboriginal 
entities in their own sovereign mm. right who exist within this country of ours. So the dilemma always was, and I, I've heard conversations where people have said, so how do you form a treaty with 250 different groups? Those who want the big bang, the big fix, uh, straight off one minister's desk, that's not the way Ken Wyatt's going to work. But um, what you can be sure of, PK, is he will work assiduously and diligently towards those goals. Now, in a moment, we're going to be joined by Sarah Martin, and she'll talk to us about the Labor reshuffle because there's been some you know dramas there that we're going to get into. But before we do... I think it's important to just talk about the tone that the Prime Minister's been using since he won the election, particularly after the team got together. He really seems to be wanting to keep the hubris in check. He addressed the first party room meeting this week saying there's a wealth of talent in the government party room which will keep the pressure to perform on all of us. He keeps talking about the quiet Australians. Australians is what we're here for. He's obviously seen, uh, you know, he's a student of history, looked at what's happened before and you wouldn't want to repeat 1993 where Labor, you know, came back, Paul Keating, the sweetest victory of all and some of those parties that they had were a bit, you know, they got a bit too excited, didn't they? You've got to kind of keep that in check, don't you, Greg? Yeah, it's a timely reminder to everyone, even including you talking about being a student of history, PK, the, the Howard government, when it got its Senate majority, go figure, 39 yep. seats. And John Howard said almost exactly the same words as Scott Morrison, actually, you know, we will not be a government with hubris or anything. On they went to push ahead with radical industrial relations reform, otherwise known as work choices. So I, I reckon that Scott Morrison is not going to veer down that path. But what he's actually saying to the personnel is, you know, if I keep uh, my hubris in check, please keep yours <laughs> in the same manner because, uh, you know, let's face it, there's been looseness of uh, personal conduct in ministerial ranks over the last five and a half to six years. And I think he's trying to rule a line under that and just saying, get the job done, forget the cat fighting and the conservatives v moderates. We've got a job to do. Might have surprised ourselves, but please, let's just get on with it. Sarah Martin, Chief Political Correspondent for The Guardian Australia. Welcome to The Party Room. Good to be here. Very exciting to have you here, Sarah. And let's start. We all need a party. Yeah, we do. We need a big party. Let's unpack what's going on in the incoming opposition party ranks. We've already talked with Greg about the government ranks and their front bench. Let's talk about Mm. Labor. Anthony Albanese Mm. has now officially become the new opposition leader. But it's really interesting what's happening in the Labor caucuses and the factions in terms of their lineup, because essentially we've had this situation where a couple of people who you would have thought would have been in there, like Ed Husick and uh, Andrew Lee, are gone. What happened? Very good question. And look, this is something that is, is perhaps quite mystifying to people in the real world, given um, the, the outcome is not always what you would expect. And I think we saw the first instance of that with Tanya Plibersek stepping down as deputy leader. And if you didn't understand how the Labor Party's factions work, that might seem a bit weird. But effectively, you've got a system where the Labor Party determines its front bench based on both the left and right factional numbers. 
And then you've also got state considerations and gender considerations. And each faction of the Labor Party actually deals with those questions differently just to make things even more complicated. But what we've seen this week is effectively a problem with the New South Wales right, where Christina Keneally was seen as worthy of promotion to the front bench. But the New South Wales right already had their uh, quota of front bench positions stitched up um, and five of those six positions were held by men. So there was some pressure on the New South Wales right to sort this out and Albanese made it very clear that he wanted Christina Keneally on his front bench and he has no say in the New South Wales right caucus. So really it was up to the New South Wales right to work it out themselves and that led to Ed Husick volunteering to step down to make way for his mate Christina. But that wasn't the end of it, though, no. was it? Because it <laughs> but went wait, on there's having, more. There's yeah, more. There's having anointed more. her and Ed Husick fell on his sword accordingly, you then had your gender balance issue in the leadership group. That's right. And that's played out ultimately with Don Farrell having to mm. fall on his as well. Mm. So Christina Keneally, obviously interested in the position of deputy Senate leader. That would ensure that you had two men and two women in Labor's uh, leadership team with Penny Wong as the Senate leader. And as I said earlier, Plibersen out of the way, so you needed to have two and two. Uh, Don Farrell was confident he had the numbers in the caucus to remain as Senate Deputy Leader, but uh, decided that he would make way for Christina to take that position. So she is now very likely to become the Deputy Leader in the Senate uncontested. You got the impression, PK, that Anthony Albanese was a little conflicted over this when he had to stand up and make all these final announcements before the ultimate caucus meeting. He did acknowledge that he's had different positions over the years on on whether the leader should have a a fiat, as um, Kevin Rudd did, or whether it should be solely in the hands of the caucus. So he kind of acknowledged he's walked both sides of the street over the years, but he's not going to upset that caucus system. That's the one he's operating under, and that's the one that's delivered him this leadership group. Yeah, that's right. He's not going to mess with that right now, is he? But look... This is, this is the ugly side of the factional system. And if you talk to left-wing MPs, I'm sure you have too, Sarah, they mm. say this is actually the rights issue. If you look at the left, there's a lot of women, a lot That's of women right. they've been promoting. So That's the right. right actually has a gender issue and this has been mm. exposed. Now, the person who first resolved it, and he did do it on his own, was Ed Husick who moved, moved aside because he realised his faction couldn't sort it out itself and that it would look embarrassing not to have Christina Keneally on the front bench. It is inconceivable that we could have a situation this week where someone of Christina's calibre as a former Premier uh, be sitting on the back bench. And, you know, from a whole lot of perspectives, it's just the right decision to make. So he took one Mm. for the team, but Sarah, (laughs) it's still a messy thing. It is a messy thing, and I think it's absolutely right, as you as you say, that the left of the party has done the heavy lifting when it comes to affirmative action in the party. And so, you know, the, the right's sort of been uh, able to rely on the left to um, have a good representation of, of women on the front bench. But when you've had a situation like this, you, you start and you look a little bit little deeper into uh, which MPs and which states uh, come from which faction, you do realise that the right really do have a problem with the number of women in their ranks. Um, and 
that comes down to you know women who are pre-selected uh, for certain seats, and we know we've got you know there are right seats, there are left seats. Uh, it, it goes right down to to the basics. So um, they've really got to start looking at how they improve their lot. Just on that Senate deputy leadership, and I know you know mums and dads of Australia wouldn't walk around <laughs> thinking about what? it. Who <laughs> has the there deputy is extra, leadership for the Labor Party? Barbecue yep. Yeah, exactly. Now there is an extra layer of complexity there that they put to you, the right faction people, when you talk to them. I don't endorse it, but mm. it's one that says, look, Don Farrell, we wanted to keep him there because he was a bit more of a steady hand and a bit of a check, which may or may not be there when Christina Keneally takes mm. over that, you know, internally important position. Now, I, I don't endorse that view that she's some loose cannon or anything, but, but they were sort of saying he was the right guy, the right fit for that, ultimately he went anyway. Mm. And there's, there's a precedent for this as well because um, back in 2012, Don Farrell was called upon to give up the number one spot on the Senate ticket for Penny Wong and that was something that Albanese was very, very much involved in back in t- 2012 and, and then Don Farrell subsequently lost his Senate seat, surprisingly, in 2013. Mm. So we have been here before. We certainly have. This is mm. quite something, yeah. So, okay, mm. what happens is there's a there's a lineup that the factions and the caucus then endorses come up with, and one of the other difficulties potentially is the role of Bill Shorten. Now he's been the leader for so long, and now he wants mm. to stay on the front bench. Bill Shorten will be respected as a former leader of the Australian Labor Party, and I will treat him with appropriate respect. Now, we're recording this on a Thursday morning. In the next couple of days, Anthony Albanese will make it clear what portfolios they all get because he gets to determine that after he gets the line-up from the caucus. But, Sarah, how's that going to work out? Former leaders on the front bench, even on the back bench, not always... Not always a happy no, it family. Always go, it doesn't always go well. But look, um, it, it sometimes does go well. Bill Shorten has uh, apparently indicated he would quite like the health portfolio. I don't expect that will happen. I think Catherine King, who is a close ally of Albanese, has indicated she wants to stay on in the health portfolio um, and has done quite a good job. Now, that's up to Albanese. He can decide, you know, maybe he wants to shake things up and refresh the team more broadly, or he may decide to leave Catherine King in that role. Um, but I don't, I don't expect Shorten will get health. Um, there's a lot of talk that he might get the disabilities portfolio, his old portfolio, and particularly given um, Morrison has made the national disability insurance game, a, a, you know, given that a, a portfolio in itself, um, that could be a good one for Shorten to, to go up against. But yes, yeah, these are these are delicate decisions for Albanese to make, particularly when he's looking at the the harmony of his uh, of his cabinet team. And then it's all on Bill Shorten, isn't it, Sarah? Because you know he can unarguably say that he had full loyalty and unity for the best part of his leadership period. He has to deliver on those goods as a front bencher as well, I well, would have thought. He, he does. I mean, he had six years as opposition leader with um, Anthony Albanese. I mean, of course, there were there were times where he was perhaps positioning himself for, for the top job, but you, you can't you can't deny that he was a loyal member of, of Bill Shorten's team for, for that time, and he will now expect the same. Bill's had his chance. Yep, that's right. So little things that I think probably are likely to happen. I think Jim Chalmers probably going to take the shadow treasury mm. role. Uh, Chris Bowen, who was the shadow treasurer, likely not to be in an economic portfolio. Andrew Lee, as we say, missed out because he's not in a faction. So now I think Sarah, I think Anthony Albanese said that he would get, he's got some committee role, doesn't he? Yeah, he, he'll be he'll be deputy chair of the economics committee, which you know is is an important role. Um, Albanese 
pointed that out that you get to grill the RBA and 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 others. You know, Andrew Lee will relish that role, but uh, it's still a demotion. Yeah, and the thing about Ed Husick, just finally on him, PK Anthony Albanese said, "Don't worry, Ed will be back if we win government. He'll somehow magically be parachuted back onto the front bench." I don't actually quite know mathematically how that works in in three years' time from now if the factions are still aligned as they are now. <laughs> so again, he's having a bit of two bob each way in uh, in laying out these new arrangements, I think. Well, I think he's relying on uh, someone leaving at right. that point and, and the authority of being Prime Minister. Sure. <laughs> yeah, because yeah, sure. he, did, he did do that. I think that was a bit, if I was in government, this would have looked yeah. different, but I'm not in government. It was all, uh, anyway, I think maybe mm. a bit of a sharpening of some of those lines, though, for sure, because mm, it's a bit loose. All right. <laughs> now... The other thing, let's let's look forward to actual policy just briefly. The Coalition's $158 billion income tax package is set to be put to Parliament in the first week of July, according to Scott Morrison, but that's later than they hoped. So there may be actually a delay in when people get it. Does that ultimately matter? Is it a broken promise? It, it does look now like it will come be legislated later than we thought. Yeah, I mean, I think if we're looking, practically speaking, how this plays out when people lodge their tax returns, if they can pass the the um, package in the first week of July, I don't think that's going to have much of a, an effect in terms of how the ATO actually administers the tax cut. I mean, yes, there will be some people who do their tax return on July 1, um, and then the ATO will have to issue another um, payment to those people. But I expect if, if most people think that the tax cut is coming, and if they wait, you know, if they wait a week, they'll get it. Then you'd think that most people, you know, who want the dough in their pockets will just wait a week before they lodge their tax return. So I don't think it's going to be a, a big problem, practically speaking, but if, we'll see. If you're slack like me and you don't get around to it till about August, it doesn't matter anyway. <laughs> who are these people who <laughs> their tax return on July 1? The right. really interesting date, though, there, I think, PK, is July 1, because that means you're working with a different Senate. And there's every indication, I think, when you look at people like Centre Alliance, mm. that the government just may get that full seven-year tax deal through, which would be astounding. I mean, Labor doesn't support it, but they might just get it through anyway. And that would be a major first-up win. Doesn't mean it stands at infinitum. It can be changed by mm. future governments down the track. But that would be a, a remarkable achievement, I think, on day day one or week one at least for the Morrison government. That's but absolutely also, right. I mean, uh, Labor doesn't want to be in a position let's say Centre Alliance don't support the full tax package. That's going to be a very thorny one for Labor to navigate because they don't want to be the ones um, standing in the way, particularly given the government has said they're not going to split the bill. They don't want to be the ones uh, blocking money Stimulus. in the pockets of, yeah. uh, of, of Australians. So, no. yeah, that's a uh, one to watch. Morrison is expected, Scott Morrison, the Prime Minister, to arrive in the Solomon Islands this weekend as part of his Pacific Step Up. You're going actually on that trip. What's what's this trip all about? Yeah, part of it. I think prime ministerial travel does signify something about your priorities. So I'll be picking him up in Singapore, PK. But I think it's no accident that a prime minister says, I'm going to go to Solomon Islands. There's been concerns there about Chinese influence and fibre optic cables. And it means that that speech, Pacific Step Up speech that he first delivered in Townsville as Prime Minister, he's actually acting on it and taking it seriously. The US absolutely wants Australia to treat this as our bailiwick, our neighbourhood to secure and to look after. And so I think that's a reasonably significant foreign policy statement in 
itself. Beyond that, he goes to D-Day in the UK and then to Singapore as well, which is uh, where I'll pick him up. But, uh, yeah, I think it's not insignificant that he scheduled this trip and that it takes in a small Pacific nation. Well, you're never going to have any time off, Greg, but uh, have a good time on the trip. Uh, we'll he keep still talking, looks amazingly fresh-faced, I have to say. He's, More he's... party room will, will keep me going, PK. That's why we keep these parties going, so that Greg's OK. But, Greg, you're staying with me anyway. <laughs> we'll say goodbye to Sarah, though. Sarah, thanks for coming in. Thanks so much for having me. It's time for Question Time, our favourite segment. And, of course, Parliament's not back, so we are the Question Time for the nation, Greg. Our first question comes from Scott from Warringah. And he writes, Karen Phelps won a protest vote in a by-election, just narrowly lost her seat this time round. Zali Stegall won her seat in some part because of opposition to the local member, Tony Abbott. What does she have to do in the next three years to make sure she gets re-elected next election? Good question, Greg. Yeah, perfectly reasonable question, Scott. I actually think there is a distinct difference between... The Wentworth of last year, 2018, and the Warringah of the general election on May 18 of this year. So one was the Liberal heartland absolutely venting its anger about a much-loved local member who just happened to be ousted as Prime Minister. The other was a long-running insurgency organised through the grassroots against a long-term MP and former Prime Minister. And I think Zali Stegall, having taken it at a general is more assured, as long as she doesn't you know, stuff up, uh, is more assured of re-election at a subsequent general election. The biggest lead in her saddlebags, Scott and PK, I would have thought would be irrelevance actually mm-hmm. because there aren't many issues we can see where the crossbench would come into play in this narrow majority uh, Morrison government. You nailed it. I was going to say that. So because they, they've won a majority... She doesn't actually have a whole lot of power in the lower house. And, of course, if you don't have power, you can't say, hey, I delivered this and I've done this and I negotiated this. So that is an issue, I think, for her in terms of relevance and and getting a really big national profile, being able to look very busy to her electorate. So I do think that is one issue. And, of course, the other sort of sleeper is a potential Liberal candidate in the future for Warringah. So we don't know what they Mm. might come up with. They'll need a pretty spectacular modern Liberal. Can I use that? Because I know that uh, it's being used by Tim Wilson and it was used uh, by Dave Sharma. They'll need that kind of person to run. But I reckon, yeah, she's, she's definitely got higher chances. But if it's a really amazing kind of Malcolm Turnbull-esque kind of candidate, it could be difficult for her. All right. Our second question comes from Melina and she asks, why do people like Tim Wilson not get promoted after his successful franking credit campaign and other people do? How exactly are people selected by the Prime Minister to fill new positions? And I've got to say, it's a very good question because a few people have raised this about Tim Wilson. You know, if you just look at the success of that campaign... I mean, franking credits was one of the key parts of it. And Tim Wilson was campaigning on this for a very long time. True, but success has many fathers. So I reckon there'd be, for every Tim Wilson, there'd be another Liberal who said, look, I flared this one up and made it into a bonfire in my own electorate by different means. You know, Tim Wilson headed a committee that went around the countryside highlighting the issue, but others fought franking credits in their own distinct and uniquely different ways in their own electorates too. Other ministers, I'm sure Josh Frydenberg would claim some credit for tackling 
that one and promoting it so heavily in the campaign. So the truth, Melina, is there's a whole matrix of considerations that goes across a prime minister's desk when he puts a ministry together. Uh, there are loosely termed factions. <laughs> Coalition balks at the words factions, but you know there are moderate conservative elements to be weighed. There are gender balances. There are inter and intra-state mixes to go on as well. Experience, aptitude. Uh, it's all in the mix. Uh, a captain's call is far more possible, I think, in, in the Liberal Party under Scott Morrison than it is under Labor, but uh, it's a lot more complex than who got a good media profile on a particular issue at a particular time. And, and to give him credit, Tim Wilson did on that issue. All right. We'll have to wrap it up there. It's been a pleasure talking to you, Greg. Thanks for coming to the party. Great to be back as always, PK. And don't forget to rate, review and subscribe everyone to uh, this amazing podcast. That's right. Greg's not going to sing, um, which is, of course, very sad and alarming for us all, but we have to accept that reality and also get in touch with questions. We love getting those questions, even when we actually can't get to them all. We know, you know, sometimes you miss out, but please keep asking them because we want to keep them new and fresh for new themes. Use uh, the hashtag The Party Room or email us at thepartyroom at abc.net.au. See you, PK. Thanks again. See you, Greg. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.